You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world famous comedy theater and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage at work, at home and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard. Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is Getting the Yes And. Um, my guest today on the podcast, this is a great one, is Lindsay Shookus. She is a former producer at Saturday Night Live. She ran the talent department at SNL, which is responsible for booking the hosts, music, and the cast. In addition to her producing responsibilities, she worked at NBC's 30 Rockefeller Center since 2002, starting as an executive assistant. Uh, currently, she is the co-founder with her friend, Chris O'Keefe Merrick, of the platform and networking community, Woman, Women Work Effing Hard, which is how we will say it. Uh, I love talking to her, and I think you'll enjoy this podcast. Unsaid. Days can't be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Lindsay Shuckus, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Kelly. There's actually so much we could talk about regarding our parallel careers at two comedy institutions that have been linked for decades, but I actually want to start in the present. So improvisation is about being fiercely present in the moment. Let's let's go there. And I want to talk about the work you're doing at Women Work Effing Hard, is how I will say it for the, this conversation. Perfect. Uh, on your website, it says, quote, some might call us a networking community, but we're so much more. We are a platform set out to unite and empower women. We aim to connect women with one another and amplify their voices, businesses, and products in a heart-forward way, end mm. quote. So I know, I'm assuming you labored on that for months, if not years, <laughs> right? Because you really try this. This I, I had a, playwright teacher, a playwriting teacher once who said, if you can't tell me your play in one sentence, you don't have a play unpack what that is and what it means to you with this initiative because it this feels uh not just professional it feels personal as well well you're right it's definitely personal i i think the key word when you said that that stuck out to me is the heart forward yeah that's what i thought you know i think um i think i've always been like attracted to people who are heart forward right and at what the crux of what we try and do at, at women work effing hard Sounds so funny to say it like that. Um, we can just say women work hard. That's uh, at women work hard is that we we had this realization. Probably I I had it in my late thirties where I was like, why why aren't women a little bit better at like saying our name, saying someone else's name in the room, or advocating for somebody else, or like you know when you look at all the stats of how little you know female founded businesses get get funding and and how hard it is to you know become into a C-level leadership role. I mean, there's a million things that we're up against. Why aren't we better about helping each other when we get to those positions? And so Mm -hmm. we, we created this in about five or six years ago with the idea of trying to educate and empower women to, to be better at advocating for each other and to realize how much 
how much we have in our brains and our hearts to help each other. Like my brain is a crazy resource. And every woman I know, all of their brains have so much going on and so much in it. And so how do you help women get better at helping women? And so it is the heart forward thing. It's like, how do you put your heart forward and think like, there's a, there's a girl next to me. I don't know, really know her that well, but I bet I could shout her name in a room and I could really change her life. Hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I've been very lucky. I mean, I grew up in a household, the youngest of six boys. Um, so, you know, but my life's work was surrounded by really accomplished women and I'm married to one too. And, um, and then in working with the scientific community, there's so much overwhelming research that women make better leaders, uh, that, mm. this, that, that empathy, that empathy, communication, collaboration, all the things we need, especially in the sort of AI enabled universe that we're walking into. This is becoming mm. even more important. However, like the misogyny is like still here overwhelmingly. And so I imagine for you, it, especially someone who's accomplished, has an accomplished career, uh, you know, that you look at, you're like, how, how is this happening still? Um, and, and I guess it goes back to sort of just, you know, foundational um, uh, structures that are bad. <laughs> and this is the thing that yeah. I come up to again and again, like, like the worst thing you can do for someone who's trying to learn is have them sit still. And what do we do to our kids, right? Yes. <laughs> it's like, no, you have to sit still, you know? And so you're like, okay, if that's wrong, we haven't been able to change it. And then these power dynamics, right? That somehow men should be in charge, you know, based on some sort of caveman aesthetic that, that yeah. is so crazy. And I think what's really interesting too about this program that you're starting is that you're doing it with like your friend. Uh, so mm. I want you to talk a bit about her and and how you came together to do this because this is not like someone you're working with at Siren Live. This is someone who no. has a career. No, real quickly to go back to what you said about yeah. the, the foundation. I mean, I do think we've all learned a certain thing. It's not anyone's fault, right? Like this is how we've been taught. Yeah, that's right. So so we've we've taken it. You, me, everyone, we've taken it in. And we just kind of lived our lives. And so I think it's the, it's the eye, it's opening your eyes. And by the way, we hold ourselves back. I want to be very yeah. clear because of what we've been taught. So it's just trying to take that chip in your brain and just change it a little bit. I mean, Kristen and I, my partner, we always say we love men. We mm -hmm. love men. Men are the best. You know, this isn't an anti-men organization. I mean, men have really, uh, so many men in my life have changed my life. But it really is just trying to flip that switch and be like, hold on, how can we, how can we grow and get better and evolve? Um, and how can we help each other? So my partner, Kristen, we uh, are best friends. We met on the first day of college at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And we've just always been close friends. She's from New Jersey. I was from Buffalo, New York. When we met in college, there was so few people from out of state that we kind of immediately, we met in orientation. We like glommed onto each other. And about five years ago, I, I think I just started, to, you know, the thing is, I didn't realize when I was in my 20s that it was as hard for women. I wasn't hearing about women growing businesses. I, I just kind of was like, you know, I was, I was very insular. I was like thinking about me. You know, I wasn't thinking about women at large. And I think when I got into my 30s and I had my daughter and I was kind of evolving, I, I started to kind of look around more and, and start to realize more of what we're up against. And more of this, the what we do to ourselves, um, especially when we become moms. And uh, I had a friend who was a uh, who started a, a business. A female, she was um, 
an esthetician, basically. She'd come to your house and she mm-hmm. was doing these like am- amazing skincare treatments. And I was trying, and I heard her story and I was like, God, I could help you get more clients. I know I can. Like, this is a huge business for New York. And I called Kristen and I said, I want to throw a party. I want to invite 50 women, not that our best, not our best friends, 50 mm-hmm. interesting women from all over the city. And I want to call it Women Work Effing Hard. Mm-hmm. And we did. We had this party. And what we found was there was such magic in the room when we brought people who didn't know each other. And we said to them specifically, we said, find two women in this room that you didn't know beforehand and figure out a way that you can help them. And that was the start. That was because people started really, there was a magic in that. There was, everyone kept being like, well, what's the catch? And you're like, there's no catch. Come have fun, drink, meet people, take home a great gift bag. The catch is you got to help somebody. And, and so that kind of started this thing where we were like, what we're on, how crazy that oh, that's all it takes, but we're onto something here. And so we now have really put time and energy and resources behind trying to grow it. And how do we get to more women? How do we, how do we help women help women? You know, that's kind of the crux of it is how do you say to someone like you have a lot of power, purchasing power, resources, network. How can you use that to help the women around you grow their businesses and their lives and their careers? This is, it's funny. I actually, this isn't in my notes and it's a common story I tell when I, so I'm in, I'm in uh, just outside of Seattle in Kirkland. I gave a keynote last night uh, for um, a Gates Foundation initiative. You were in Boston yesterday with like, what was it, Aero Technology Group? Yeah, Raytheon. <laughs> Who's the idiot who keeps hiring us for these things? But uh, you'll appreciate the story because I think it speaks to this and it's also our friends. Um, I tell a story when I'm talking about leadership uh, around um, when I was producing Second City, um, and this is in the late 90s. I often say, you know, you think Tina Fey was probably a star on stage and like no one was paying attention to Tina Fey with that haircut. It just was not happening. But you probably know who everyone was paying attention to, and it was Rachel Dratch. But mm-hmm. Rachel auditioned and did not get hired. And Tina did mm-hmm. into, the, into the writing staff. And this is like how genius Tina is in terms of supporting people and understanding how to get things done. Uh, uh, is She calls me after uh, her first season, and it's the summer. And she's like, hey, I want to do a show with Dratch. And like, uh, and so, so I'm like, sure. And she's like, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and our ETC theater is dark. You can have it there. It's called Dratch and Faye. And this show was so great. But what Tina knew was that Lauren and company were going to come that summer, as they often do, as you often did, and scout Second City. And Tina was the new head writer. He's not going to not go to her show. And then that's genius, right? It's genius. It's this just is- genius. <laughs> And that's, and that's what Tina does all the time in all these different ways. And it's a, an incredible gift. And who knew that she would be such an incredible leader? And, and it's not, but it's not obvious in part mm. because she has such an understanding of gender dynamics comedically. But, you know, that's, she has it comedically and it fosters itself in the world. That's why it's funny. Uh, so mm-hmm. I feel like that's a perfect example of what you're talking about in a story that I can use, and I'm sure you have the same ones that are like, okay, this is why this company's hiring us, because these are now people that they understand, they, they, they appreciate, they love, uh, but then they understand that, oh, no, they go through all this stuff, too. Right. I mean, what I take from the Tina story is, like, the intention, right? The intention behind it. It's like... It's like, you don't just say like, oh, I know this woman and this woman, I'm going to put them together and woo. Like, it's like, you really think of like, and it doesn't take that long and it's not mm. that hard, but really thinking through 
you know, who do I know? How can I help you? Like there are such small ways. And I love that Tina, I didn't, I didn't actually know that story about her and trash, um, but I'm not surprised, obviously. No, 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 no. Uh, I, there's a quote. I was, I was, uh, I was doing my research and I found the thing that you said, quote, one of the things I've reflected on over my career is that institutions like people are imperfect, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't hold each other in our institutions to do better, but expecting perfection is guaranteed disappointment. End quote. Mm. Oh man! Oh my God, that's quite a quote. Who said yeah, that? Yeah, it's you. Nice, nice job. Wow. Uh, so, Francis Fry and Ann Morris. Francis is a Harvard professor. Um, they have a terrific new book coming out, um, and they talk about that leadership is imperfect human beings leading imperfect human beings. Um, there's other folks. I've scientists I've had on the podcast who are all talked about this idea of like. There is no perfect. If we can let go of perfect, we actually have an opportunity because we get into these places where suddenly we're blaming instead of being curious. Mm. And, and we need to replace, replace blame with curiosity if we're going to have a chance at, you know, make, making things out of nothing or, or whatever endeavor we're involved in. So I want to talk a bit about this because it is not um, it's not a negative statement, you know, and, and I think but I think people sometimes might think it is because they've mm-hmm. got this unrealistic ideal of what it is to be, be a human being in the world or the working world. Well, you know, here's the thing about me and is that I spent the first 33 years of my life really believing that I could be perfect. I mean, I, I wish I had heard it more when I was a kid. Mm. I spent all my time telling my daughter now, like, but I really did think that I could be, I could go through the world. I could wake up perfect. And that everyone could think I was good and that everyone could like me and that I wouldn't make any mistakes. And that that was the way I was going to get through the world. And that's how I saw it. And I tell this story in a lot of my keynotes about how, when I, I had my daughter. So I, I, you know, I basically, I worked a a 14 hour day on my due date, you know, Justin Bieber, Justin Bieber hosted music, went to work, did a 14 hour day. At the end of the show, said goodbye to Lauren. Lauren's like, are you going to go to the party? And I was like, no, I'm going to go have a baby. <laughs> because I'm Cosmo will have a baby. Everything's fine. I'm fine. Don't let anyone see you sweat. Don't let anyone see you crack. And I had my daughter and it was like, it was the ultimate cracking for me. I, mm. I felt so much. I like the pressure started to choke me and I could, I like felt pressure to be a good mom. Like everybody does. And I felt pressure to immediately lose baby weight and look like I'd never had a baby. Cause God bless if you're a mom in show business. And then I felt like I needed to keep my hand at SNL because I didn't want to be, I was just afraid. I had fear of if I didn't have my hand in the show and I felt pressure to be the breadwinner. And I felt I had all these pressures and it was like, I always use the, um, the idea of like, you know, when a, a pebble hits your windshield when yeah. you're going on the highway and you get the little pit and you're like, oh, it's not going to get bigger. It's it's not going to grow. Everything's fine. It's just going to stay like that. And then it slowly starts to grow. And before you know it, like you're really, it's not safe to drive. And it's like six weeks after I had my daughter, it was not safe for me to be driving. Mm. And, but I look back at that moment and it just ultimately cracked me. And it started to teach me that like, I had to let, I couldn't fake it anymore. I had, I got into therapy first time in my life. I got into therapy when I was 33, but I couldn't pretend that everything was together. And I slowly started to like, let myself talk to like the hosts and talk to people about, I could say things like, you know what? I'm not my, the best version of myself. That was one of the first things I said to a host. I remember it distinctly. And I started to learn that like, 
that was the most amazing connector among, among relationships. How do you build relationships? You build them by being vulnerable, right? The fastest mm-hmm. way to build trust is to treat someone like they're trustworthy. And, and it ultimately changed my life, that cracking. But man, I really thought that I was going to, I was going to, I was going to be perfect. And I didn't understand the magic that happens once you make a mistake and you go through failure and you have adversity. I mean, it's ultimately changed me. I don't think you and I have talked about this. So Colbert was my wife's roommate at Northwestern. That's right. Yeah. So, okay. We did. And so, you know, yeah. he was in my first cast. He and I share this love of this quote. There's a guy named Rick Thomas, who's a longtime teacher and actor and director at Second City, borderline out of his mind. I don't think he'd mind me saying that. Uh, but he, he has this phrase, you need, to, you need to learn to fall into the crack in the game. Mm-hmm. And what I take from that is many things. One of them improvisationally is like a mistake happens, go towards it, run towards it, because there's really good stuff there. The other thing I take from it is I don't think you can get to a state of flourishing or the state pre-flourishing without that crack as a human mm-hmm. being. It's been mm-hmm. my experience. I've been broken a number of times. And, and I've had a charmed life, I think. Um, but but it, without, without those sort of breakages, <laughs> I don't think you're pushed to look for more. Mm, absolutely. I, okay. I completely agree with you. I think that I always say, like, you don't really have to grow that much in the great times, right? Like, right. I mean, you can't, you can, but you don't have you. to. Yeah. Um, you don't have to. And, and so it's really, for me, it's the, like, going through the crack, getting through the crack and then having to go back in hindsight and be like, what, what am I getting from this? You know, like, what am I, I always say like, it's a shame if you go through the the muck and then you can't find the, like the lesson and the thing to like put on and wear throughout your life because you went through it. You went through the hard thing. You got through it. You're survived. So now what is the, like, you know, what is the nugget that's going to make your life better? And so now I'm just like a nugget collector. I'm just like, okay, I got this thing, got this thing. And it's hard. It's not like when you're in the, when you're in those moments where you don't want to get out of bed, you are like, God, I can't wait for the, I can't wait for the beautiful lesson to arrive, but it, it should. And it can. Yeah. yeah. And I found that uh man, like I am who I am today because of a lot of that stuff. And I like myself so much more today than I did 15 years ago. And I mm-hmm. think it's because of, you know, the resilience, the grit, the strength, and the, I've become better, you know? Yeah. All right. Let's stick with the, pro- with, with the problems. I think they're good. Uh, Danny yeah. Kahneman, who is maybe the smartest man alive, talks about the thing that he, he sees life as a series of problems to be solved. And that's a good thing. This guy's like mm-hmm. an incredible optimist, a lovely human being. And you wrote, quote, so much of my life in production at Saturday Night Live is problem solving. I'm waking up and being like, what fire will I put out today? Have I talked to the host today? What time is the musical guest coming in? Then it's like, do I have a booking hole that's from three weeks from now? How am I going to solve that? Who are my options? It's totally different beast when I'm in production because there's always something going slightly wrong. Mm. At my talk last night, I said to everyone, uh, raise your hand if you've ever worked at a functional job or a business that's <laughs> called functional. How many people rose their hand? None of them. Mm, yeah. So this, I, and, and we, we are, we are both producers, right? That that's, we, mm. we are formative youth were for me, tw- 26 years producing at second city for you. It's like 20, 22 years. Yeah. yeah. Right. And we know what that job is, which is everything. It's turning on the lights when you come in and turning out the lights when you leave and everything else in, in between. And all it is, 
is hassles and problems. But your ability to frame what that is when you come in is the difference, I think, between being happy and satisfied and in a learning space as opposed to being beaten down and, you know, t- taking it a whole other different direction. And I, I don't know, I don't know how you do it without that. Like, I don't, I don't, mm. there is no Eden where that the problems are, are suddenly take, taken away as far as I've seen. Yeah. I mean, I also think you can go back and forth between those two things, right? I don't think it's like a perfect, like you come in and you're like, you know, someone has COVID and the, and the booking's gone and now we have to solve it. And like, I'm going to be, this is going to go great. You know, like I think, um, and you, I mean, I'm sure you went through this, like, you know, you also like have a crisis and you don't love the way you handled it. And you're like, well, I don't like the way that feels, you know, I can't tell you how many times I like, you know, went through, went through a real problem and was like, and I woke up the next day, like feeling like disappointed in myself of like, you could be better. So I do think, I think it's like, I can now, I so, I've learned so much in hindsight now, like having a year away from SNL and being able to really like look at it, heal all the things you need to do to like understand something that was such a huge part of my life. But it's like, you have to be able to go in like shoulders back, palms up, like open mind, mm-hmm. uh, open heart. And like really, um, really bring, I feel like bring the people in with you. Like, you know, you need a great team. You need trust in that team. You need to also have perspective of like, this is a comedy show, right? Like this is a comedy show. Like this is not, we, there's no, there's not going to be nuclear war when, you know, Kanye West doesn't like his, you know, whatever on set, like it's just a comedy show. So let's try and put it in perspective. And and like, listen, it was a really demanding and exciting and crazy world I went through every week. But I think that we always used to say Sunday always comes, right? Sunday always comes. And like having the perspective to be like, this is going to end. And then we are going to put this book, we're going to close that book and we're going to put it on our bookshelf and we're going to open another one the next day. And so it's like how, I think the thing that I really realized was like, how do I, how can I get through this each week? And feel good about who I am at the end of it. You know, it's not about like, I need to stay true to who I am. And that wasn't a perfect science. I had to kind of make some mistakes to, to realize who I wanted to be, but, you know, really trying to keep uh, integrity at the heart of it. There's a cognitive scientist. His name's Irving Yalom. And I saw this quote and it is, it is stuck with me. I use it all the time. He says, sooner or later, you have to give up the hope for a better past. Mm. interesting and it's this idea right that you there's so much that goes wrong and you can ruminate about it and do all of this stuff and and it doesn't fix anything and it doesn't change anything but if you can take all those things and be present and in the moment um it is such a better place to be because it's hard this stuff is hard Mm. you know it's i'm like really like thinking about that quote, I, I think I'm, I'm fairly, I said this to my fiance the other day. I, I think I'm like a, I've always just been a glass half full person. Like I, I, I was born that way. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I just had this moment realizing it the other day of like, how lucky am I? Because I, it's a mindset. Right. And I don't think, I think I just, this is who I am, but I don't, there's not a lot that I go back and think like, Oh, I shouldn't have done that. Or I couldn't, you know, like, I feel pretty 
I feel pretty confident with what I have gained from those real big errors and those things. And so, like I said, I feel so confident in, in the way I feel about myself today um, that I couldn't change any of that stuff. So I don't, I don't really live in those, like, I mean, sure. You can kind of be like, Oh my, you can cringe, you know, you can be Mm -hmm. like, Oh God, that's so embarrassing. But I don't, there's not much that I would rewrite, um, you know, here or there, maybe a little thing, but like, I think I've really just come to terms with like, this is who, this is what's made me who I am today. One of the things you, you, you talked about, you said, quote, you're not helping the woman next to you. If you're not being honest, you have to say the hard mm-hmm. thing and tell the truth, even when you know, your friends don't want to hear it, which then reminded me of Kim Scott's radical candor, this idea that yeah. you know, someone's not, they're not going to take the note unless they know that you completely have their back. Yeah. I mean, it's a hard thing to do. You know, it's a, it's a really hard thing to do. And I do believe there is, you know, I guess is like the, uh, like radical candor. I'm like, is artful honesty the opposite? I don't know what, how we would play, but like, I do believe there is a, the gift, like there's an art to honesty and that I found at my job at SNL, like so much of my job was, you know, being able to be artfully honest with somebody and be like, they might, you know, a host could come in with like a slew of ideas and a lot of them might not be so great, right? Yeah. Like a lot of them might, might you could be like, oh my God, you're going to get killed for that one. And this one's not going to be funny. And this one, we already have someone who does that. But having to go in and like always like find a nugget that that could work or that you can be positive about um, and then really be able, I think it sets you up to really be able to be fully honest about the rest once you can kind of find some sort of positive thing. So it's not, I again, I don't know where it fits in that, but I... I think it's hard. It's hard to say, to say things um, that people don't want to hear. But I do think when, you know, knowing those people who are in your life, we all need them, right? We all need to have someone who's going to be like, sorry, you know? And I think that's, I always used to say like, you know, when, when a lot of people in the celebrity status, when they've like, you know, skyrocketed in their career and especially when they're teenagers, they have so many yes men around them all the time. Right. Yes. Oh, yeah. That's a great idea. Yes. Mm-hmm. You should do this. Yes. You should. And it's like, it's not even their fault. That's just, they've been trained to be like, Oh wow. I really am smart. Everyone's telling me how great I am. And I think it's important to have people around you who are going to ground you and be like, sorry, but that looks awful or that's not good behavior or that's going to get you in trouble. And, um, we all need them. Right. But you got to hold on to them. We got to hold. When you find someone who's like that, that you trust, you got to hold on to them. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Kristen, Kristen is that for me. Kristen, my partner, when we work hard, she says the hard stuff, you know, she's, yeah. you know, she keeps me honest and some, and some, and Kristen and I can get in fights. Like we can get in arguments. Um, and we learn to be probably better arguers now, but like, it's hard to, you know, it's not going to be perfect when you have someone who tells you stuff you don't want to hear. My, my friend Jenna Stiege is like that. When I was coming out to this thing, I'm like, oh, if I see Bill Gates, I'll high five him. And she goes, Kelly, do not touch that man. <laughs> uh, so as we're talking, what I'm thinking about, too, is when we start started working with the behavioral science community around improvisation and we taught the scientists the yes and exercise. Right. And this they had immediately glommed onto that. They understand that. In behavioral economics, the default position is to say no or do nothing. So yes, and is really just this nudge to kind of bring up everything and try everything and play with mm-hmm. everything real healthy way, really good for good comedy, but also a healthy uh, way in early stage ideation. And then they ask the question, but what if you disagree and you don't want a yes and, but you need to stay inside the conversation? And we didn't know. And then over the course of the first year, we actually developed this practice called thank you because, 
And the idea is that if we disagree on something, but I have to keep going with you, um, you share your thing that I don't like, and I thank you for it. So it immediately sets off the gratitude part of the brain. You're not in fear of flight. I'm not either. And the because is I just find anything a kernel of what you said that I do agree with or that I connect with. And what we found overwhelmingly, and there's a paper coming out next year about this, is that people will they'll stay in the conversation longer. They'll see the other person as human as opposed to an enemy. And I think especially the world we live in now, where everyone's so quick to block and cancel and, you know, and destroy, that that's just mm-hmm. not, you know, that, that, that we're not going to do well doing that. And we're always going to have disagreements because we're all different kinds of people. And we see the world, we see the world the way we see it. How, how are we mm-hmm. going to see it in a different way unless we allow ourselves to connect with these humans? Um, and I'm not talking about like people doing evil. I'm talking about every no. dumb whatever. But be, but learn. I mean, you know, it's like I really have been working. I'm I can be defensive. I that's something that I really have kind of honed in on. Like my my thing that I need to improve on, right? And and so and I can be hot. I can be like no. I want to you know. I can get into an argument. And so I'm really trying to get better about like when I hear something that feels weird. My heart, my stomach, something feels weird. Trying to sit for a second before I like jump, you know, like really trying to learn. I remember um, going, uh, auctioning off SNL tickets, you know, years ago to some charity and the person who came and came to the party and I sat next to the party was a card carrying NRA number uh, member. Right. And I'm, and it's two in the morning and I've had three shows in a row and I'm so exhausted. And I'm just like, Oh my God, I can't believe like, this is who I have to sit and have a conversation with at the in the middle of the night after three long shows. And I thought to myself, like, this is a moment to ask questions and learn, even though it's two in the morning. And so I just sat there and I was like trying to just open mind, be like, how do I, I so disagree with most yeah. of the things this person is, believes, but like, I got to just take it in. I, I can't, this isn't a place to like give him my beliefs. He already knows. He assumes he already knows what my beliefs are. And it was a really interesting conversation, but it's hard, you know, it's hard to have those nowadays and we don't. And so I'm really trying to force myself to get better at being like, even like hard feedback, you know, sit with it, really try and sit with it before you respond. Take that. The solution is in the pause. I often say like, if you just can sit for five you know, five minutes before you react and just be like, okay, I'm feeling this. And like, and not, um, I don't know, it, your mind, your mind opens up a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't give ourselves space. We're, we're, no. we're not, we're not gracious with ourselves often in terms mm-hmm. of that, like about, you know, I, I, during COVID uh, we, we talked a lot about, um, cause we had to pivot, right. All of us had to pivot. And, yeah. um, so a lot of our corporate clients were calling us for like, I need, like, what do you have on resilience? What, what can I do for my yeah. resilience? And I remember, uh, I've told the story before, but there was a woman who was exec ed at Yale and she had moved to a soft drink company, um, not Coke. Uh, <laughs> and she said to me like, what do you have? And I was, you know, we're all stuck in our houses. So I'm on the third floor. My wife, Anne's on the first floor and I yelled out, I'm like, what do you have on resilience? And I, was like, I actually literally just developed this exercise. So it's called wish. And you have people get a piece of paper and make three columns. In the first column, you write down something you wish you could do right now that you couldn't. So this is COVID right at the beginning. I'm like, uh, swim in salt water. Cause I was in Chicago. Not, yeah. not doing second column, you write down the emotion you think you'd feel if you got that wish. So I wrote down refreshed. And then the third column, you write down something you could do right now to feel that emotion. So it's like, 
put water on my face, go for a run. So we don't have agency over these large world events that are happening. We do have agency over our emotional response to them. Mm. And and listen, you said it, like we don't give ourselves space. We don't give ourselves stillness. It's a world of just like feed yourself something so you're not really sitting, right? I mean, yeah. I'm a big believer that like, you know, something I'm, I talk about all the time is like how mindfulness actually makes you, for sure makes you a better leader. Like, yep. I don't care what what line of work you're in. I don't care where you're working. Mindfulness actually makes you better. You know, you. Um, I heard this uh, this leader um, at a private equity company a couple weeks ago said to me, um, listen with more than your ears. Right. That requ- And by the way, that makes you a brilliant leader. Mind you, also a great listener and a great relationship builder. But... It also, it's hard to do, right? You have to actually, and that's mindfulness. If you actually take the time to sit, um, it's, and, 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 and be alone in your thoughts or just like not have any thoughts at all, you actually become 10 times better at everything else. Yeah. I mean, because, uh, uh, we're so worried about how we are perceived that we're often, mm. you know, we have so many exercises at second city uh, where it's, it's about listening to the end of sentences. And then that awkward thing, if you're doing that, you're not plotting how to respond and then get people mm. get thrown. And you're like, no, 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 that's the point. Like, like, here's the deal. If I, if I'm listening to the end of what you say and I, you know, if I'm like thinking about it, that feels good. I feel seen. Mm. I feel good. So mm-hmm. you don't have to respond right away. That's not the requirement. The requirement is to be thoughtful, and then people are going to appreciate that in a conversation. But man, that's like this isn't. There was our schooling didn't teach us this. It wasn't part of any tra- like like we had a training program. <laughs> isn't that hilarious? People are like, "How'd you get trained?" I'm like, "I showed up." Yeah, I I knew nothing, and I just it was trial oh. by fire. Yeah, Lauren's manual he handed you. Yeah, no, I didn't get one from Andrew Alexander either. It was like, <laughs> no. Oh my god, it's so funny to think about that. Can you, I, I imagine you like thinking about your like twenty something self, just being mm-hmm. like, just showing up and being like, "Well, this is going to be great. I'm going to work hard. <laughs> this is going to be awesome. This is going to be so cool." Yeah, and then I've got I mean, Techner and Scott Adsit yelling at me about something that I don't even understand. I'm like, no, okay, I'll figure it out. I mean, I know. To go, I want to go back to the other thing, but I, I do think about that version of myself, right? That mm-hmm. version of myself that showed up to SNL when I was 22 mm-hmm. and I knew nothing about show business. I was laughing um, with someone the other day that when I interviewed for SNL, I was asked if I'd ever worked with talent before. And I grew up in Buffalo, New York. I clearly had never really done much in show business. And I had had an internship at New Line Cinema Um one summer in publicity and I handed Jackie Chan, <laughs> Jackie Chan a coffee. And so when they're like, have you worked with talent in my head? I was like, yeah. well, I did hand Jackie Chan a coffee. So the answer <laughs> is clearly yes. I've definitely worked with talent, you know? And, uh, but I, I really, God, I like that version of me was so just like, so innocent and so excited and so just like, you know, so ready to be infused by all all of the things. And yeah, I think I thought there was going to be structure. I think I thought there was going to be like, here's how you do it. And there wasn't, as you know, it was kind of just like, um, I mean, I guess that's the cool part, right? Is that I, there was something inside me that just kind of was good at it and was able to grow, grow there. Um, just like you were at second city. It's, but it's, it's, uh, yeah, you definitely have. You had, I had no idea 
what I was in for. No. Just truly no idea. I was 21 and uh, I was hired as a dishwasher. And the other guy who was hired as a dishwasher the same day was John Favreau. So, and we both oh had bullets. Oh my God. If there could be a picture of that, I hope there is a picture of that. It's in my wife's that office. Is, oh, <laughs> that is so, so genius. God bless. That is so fun. And it's funny. Cause uh, like, I know this is like seven years ago or whatever. I'm on the phone with an agent and they go, Oh, one of your friends is here. Puts me on speaker. And it's Johnny Fabs, which is what we all call him. But it was so funny. Cause it's like, you know, what an incredible career he's had. I mean, he has just taken, you know, like the most intriguing steps. And then you get him on the phone. You're like, Oh yeah, he knows that I know. He, yeah. Like, we all knew what idiots we were. But <laughs> you know, I don't think you step into these places, these sort of vaunted historical, incredible places and you survive if you aren't just like open to everything and and the ability to like, okay, yeah, there's no roadmap. That's, that's what we've got here. I'm going to, I'm going to figure it out, but I'm going to figure it out by really watching and really listening and really seeing and trying to gauge what is the important nugget here. And for me, and I think it's probably true for you. It was all oral tradition. Mm. It was all sort of like, okay, I understand this. This isn't written down anywhere. This isn't written down So when, uh, COVID happened when we got sold, when everyone's gone and like my wife Ann and I are two of the only people left from the, you know, old, old days, we were mm. like, oh, it's time to write this down. And oh, so we, right. we, we literally created a second city self-study and wrote most of it. It's about 48 pages. And as wow. we're preparing to open, you know, a second city in New York and Williamsburg, we just hired staff. And I was like, oh, you need the self-study. And these guys are like, oh, my God, this is incredible. I'm like, you're so lucky that you get this. You, I mean, that's really responsible. I have to say, like, that is, that's like, I'm impressed. I'm impressed that you like, to like have that as a tool and a resource. I can't even imagine it. Like, well, are you, I'll say, I'm going to send it to you because you'll be fascinated yeah. by it. It literally is like, well, this is how this started. Know that you, you can change that. Like, you don't have to do it this way, but this is the reason it's been done that way. And because you just like, you don't know, you don't know that if you change one thing, everything could just be like, what if I'm sure I am sure executives for years have been saying, why do you do it live? Yeah. Oh my, or why do you do a dress rehearsal and have 30 minutes extra material? Yeah. I mean, it's, but you know, I, what's interesting is that like what you can't quite explain, right. Is how important, the social dynamics and the politics and the like just being able to be in a room with people is at a show like that. And we're in at second city, like, you know, reading a room, like God, I mean, Mm -hmm. how important is reading a room at those places? Like knowing when to come in, when to go out, when to make a joke, when, I mean, also like as someone who like, I've always thought I had a pretty good sense of humor. Guess what's not cool when you're like an assistant in the talent department, you're not going to come in and like crack jokes all day. Cause the other people are the funny ones. You're the ones who are able to like kind of be quick or smart or be able to just like laugh, but like, don't try and compete with the people who are, who are there to be funny, you know? And, but, but that's what I'm like, it's funny. Cause I, you know, you're not told that stuff, but that's how you sink or swim. You sink or swim based on the fact of, can you adjust to how this place works? How can you, um, Lauren always used to say when you're walking down the hallway at 3am, because we were walking down a lot of hallways at 3am, do you want to see the person that's walking towards you? You know, mm. and and that's such an, a crucial part to succeeding at FML in any role. I mean, definitely when you're a cast member and a writer, but 
when you're a producer, when you're an assistant, like the people who succeed are the ones you want to see when you're walking down the hall late at night. I love that. All right. So we always end the podcast by asking our guest for a yes and story. Do you have one for us? I do. I, I have to, th- I was thinking about this, knowing that you asked this and I'm like, I feel like this, the second chapter of my life, um, uh, host SNL has become one big yes. And like everything I do is just like, you know, like I said, shoulders back, like, yes, saying yes to everything, but I will, there is, um, about six months ago, I, I've always been pretty conservative when it comes to like woo woo, like hip, you know, like, um, like drugs. I just kind of was always like, I, I, when I went to get a, when I went to therapy, I thought that was like a really big deal. So I had a friend who wanted to, who offered to do like an MDMA kind of retreat style healing session. All right. And, and I, old me would have been absolutely like, For sure. you know, thank you, but, or thank you. But, <laughs> yes, you know, like, <laughs> thank you, but no, <laughs> but, thank you, but no. Um, but I did it. It was a really, really, it was, it was set up in like a really like safe, uh, we said intentions, the whole thing. And, and I, one of my intentions was I wanted to get into fear. I really wanted to talk about fear. And I had the most like life changing experience, um, getting into like, I said something like, I want to, I want to put all my fears in a suitcase and I want to throw that suitcase in the water. And we came to this thing where I, I started realizing like, I'm like, I've been, we picked up the suitcase. We started making my suitcase. We're like, okay, what's, what's in this fear suitcase? And I started putting stuff in my suitcase. And then also I I pick up this actual literal basket while I'm in this retreat, I pick up this basket and I was like, this isn't my suitcase. Why am I carrying the suitcase? And I, I had this whole realization of like how many fears I'm carrying around that aren't my own. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like we, we are given people, other people's fears, Mm -hmm. like, Fears that are passed on from our family, from our workplace, from our friends. And it's like, mm-hmm. what, what are mine? And I have to tell you this experience, it stays with me every single day. Like what a beautiful place to do a yes and that I wouldn't have done before um, because it really has changed me. And I'm not that I'm not scared. I still have fears, but I have a better way to look at them now of like, is this mine? Or is this my parents? Or is this mine? Or is this from SNL? Or is this mine? Or is this something that is a you know a, a trauma thing from years ago? And um, I'm so I'm really kind of proud of it, honestly. Like it, it's really been it's a game changer for sure. I love that, and I think too. And this is a thing you're going to discover as your kids get older, because as a parent, there there are there are really good manuals for parenting that I found when the kids are young. Mm-hmm. Um, once they're like 19, 20, 21, there's no, I have yet to find the good book on parenting an adult. Mm. Uh, and which is what I do now. But part of that is also understanding that kind of stuff, which is like, oh, you're a young person with fear, a young person with, you know, and, and especially the world we live in now, which is so much more uncertain than the one you and I walked into. I mean, I'm older mm-hmm. than you, but you're still part of that generation that was like, no, we're going to get a job or it's all going to be okay. You yeah. know, and, and I'm not carrying around this like ridiculous debt or wh- whatever it is. And that's just not the same for, for young people today. And the world is very uncertain. Um, so this, this idea of giving them or trying to support them through, um, you don't need to be afraid. You can take some chances and some risks, um, healthy ones, hopefully. Uh, that, that is the, the, a sort of positive sort of orientation towards that is a gift you can give your, your kid as, as they're moving out into the world, which I just don't, I don't, I don't know that my parents needed to, 
you know, like, man, I, I'm literally having this, like you were talking and I'm like, I had this moment of being like, Oh my God, like I'm giving, there's some, like my dog, you know, um, there, there's like these dance classes in New York city where like all the boys and girls get together and they put on like white gloves and they do this like dance thing. I don't know. It's like for kids of fifth grade. And when I was in fifth and sixth grade, I had to do this like Friday night. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And I had, I was so scarred by it. I was like, cause, because I was like, no boys ever asked me to dance. I was never asked to dance. I was always, they literally had a, a paper dance card and my dance card was always empty. And I always ended up having to dance with the girls. And I was trained to think that was awful. And my daughter brought it up to me last year. And it's like, I'm, I, this, while you were talking, I was like, oh my God, I'm giving her my fear. fear. Like I've given it to her. Like what? that's not even hers. And it's like, I, I'm like, you're, I don't want her dance card to be empty. <laughs> oh my God. It's so interesting. We've come up with like, we've come up with like three good titles for your book. One is oh I, I got coffee for Jackie Chan. <laughs> I don't want my daughter's dance card to be empty. I mean, this is going to oh be hard. These are good um, titles. I've got so many, man. Um, God, what you're helping. I just, I had a discovery, another self-discovery today from you, Kelly. I appreciate it. I love it. Uh, Lindsay Shookus, thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's such Getting a pleasure. Getting BSN is produced so by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Iridian Fierro from WGN. We get support at the Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about the Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com.
survive.